0: to the Janelle King show. This is Janelle King and you're listening to Extra 106.3. I know some of you are used to hearing me say this is let's talk about it with Janelle King, but we've dropped the let's talk about it because it was really hard for people to find the show. And so now we're just going to be the Janelle King show. And if you want to listen to past episodes, please go to allthingsjking.com. Again, that's allthingsjking.com. You can find out which way you should listen to the podcast um we are on all platforms but sometimes some people just want to go and see all the platforms and then pick the one that works for them so you know do that we also have the podcast park which will show up on that website the podcast park is part of extra 106.3 and you can also catch all of my podcast episodes past and the ones that are coming if you go to the podcast park but again just go to my website hit listen and you'll see all the many ways you can listen to the podcast, and that's again that's allthingsjking.com. And I've also rolled out what I call Tus Talks. Um, it's very new, so don't be afraid if you go there and you're one of the few, but <laughs> that are part of the conversation. But Tus Talks Talks is a It's a page on my website where you can comment, you can send me requests, you can speak with other conservatives or anyone else who just happens to listen to the show. And so I I wanted to start a dialogue within our network because one thing I noticed is that there's no monoliths. There's no monoliths. There are a lot of people who are identifying as a lot of different stuff as it relates to politics, and um, they have various different reasons. And I think we need to encourage conversation rather than pushing it to the side. So there you have it. There's Tus Talks. You go to my website, allthingsjking.com, and you will be able to engage. Today, we're going to talk about immigration. There's a lot going on with the border. I'm going to dive into all of that stuff. But why am I talking about immigration? Because I believe in my heart that there are a few topics that are going to be front and center, front and center in 2024, particularly during this election year. That's immigration, abortion, obviously the economy, healthcare and elections and election integrity. I really do believe these are the hot topics of this year. So I decided that I wanted to do shows that are reflective of what we're all talking about. This is something that's really been a hot topic on everyone's mind, and that's immigration. Last week, we talked about abortion. And if you or someone that you know is wanting to know the difference between what's happening in the media and what's really happening on the ground... If you want to know whether or not you're being duped through messaging, I suggest you go back and listen to last week's episode on abortion. I really do think that there is a huge element of that discussion that's going to play a major, major role in what's happening in the upcoming election as it relates to political narratives. I really do think that political narratives are running rampant. So we talk a lot about that. And so I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode if you missed it. So we're going to just kind of pick up where we left off today. And we're going to talk about immigration. And before we go into what's happening on our border and now what's happening in these quote unquote sanctuary cities. And then a quick analysis at the end of how I think this is going to play a major role in this election and how I do see some things shaping up that could be a concern from both sides of the aisle. But before we get into all of that, I think it's important that we give some backstory on this because here's the thing. I believe that as conservatives, we are not putting enough of an emphasis on Immigration. We're talking about the border. We're talking about the border wall. But I do think that when it comes to having the conversation around what do we do with DACA? What do we do with those who are already here who you really can't track? What do we do with the immigration process as a whole, considering the fact that there are so many that are still going through the immigration process? My husband and I had an employee. He and his wife received their citizenship while they were working with our company and it took them it took them about 10 years to get their citizenship. That's that's a long time to be waiting to be be deemed a citizen if you're someone who's working and doing it the right way. So, I definitely think we have to talk about these things, right? Immigration is something that I think that that the ball has been dropped. I believe that it has been a political ping-pong that has gone back and forth, you know, at one point it's in the hands of the Democrats and everything that they love is what it is and what they want is what it is and then the next thing you know it's now in the hands of Republicans like we see right now when it comes to this border crisis and how the surge of migrants has caused a lot of angst in the community on so many different levels but you have to go back to the last major immigration policy because there was an immigration policy that was passed in 1980 in in the 80s and it was actually passed in 1986 but prior to that being passed we did see that there was an increase and some border patrol resources in the 1980s. They, there was a significant uptick and in increase in resources that was allocated towards the U.S. Patrol, Border Patrol, and that came with additional border agents. That came with some technology, some infrastructure upgrades. Things of that nature. There was a response to drug trafficking that we saw happening that was taking place on a you know wide scale, as well as there were asylum policies that were also tackled. But I would say the most significant was the passing of the Immigration Reform and Control Act, IRCA, in, in 1986. This was signed into law by President Ronald Reagan, and basically the law granted amnesty to certain undocumented immigrants who have been living here in America continuously, and I believe it was before, like they had to have been living here continuously since or before January 1st, 1982. And I think along with this whole um, amnesty and everything else that came with it it also established that there were some employer sanctions that were put in place and this was to help deter you from hiring undocumented workers there were some things that were put in place back in the 80s but we haven't seen real policy like real policy In a very, very long time, we haven't seen anything pushed that would help this process or help those who are being impacted by this process. And I do think that this is something that we have to do. That being said, there is a current bill that's on the table. The goal of this current bill that our Senate and our House is all over there trying to figure out some of the stuff that's in this bill is toughening up uh, asylum protocols for migrants that are arriving at our U.S. border and bolstering some bolder enforcement with more personnel they are talking about high-tech systems as well as deterring migrants from making the journey in the first place now all of this is included in this current bill that somehow is being hamstrung or held up the democrats are saying that republicans are holding it up and the republicans are saying that nope it's the democrats that are holding it up because they keep trying to fill the bill with other stuff and, and get other stuff passed or tack it on to something else and so you have a lot of those concerns as well. I just want to make sure that while we're looking at this bill and this new current bill, that we're keeping the main thing, the main thing, which is the state of this country and the impact that it, that these migrants are having on the country. But I also want to keep some other things in mind. We can't keep putting forth the same bills or the same responses over and over and over again. We've already said that if we increase technology, it'll help. We've already said that if we put up uh, more border walls or fencing and things of that nature, that it would help. And we've talked about asylum protocols and all that stuff. It seems like sometimes these bills are just patching up a problem, but not necessarily doing anything to fix the problem. And I have a theory as to why I think that's the case. I personally believe that the reason why we're not seeing any change particularly when it comes to the immigration process is because we're not addressing the immigration process. It's because we're addressing everything else around the immigration process. We are patching up walls here and fixing plumbing there and, you know, doing a little fixer upper here and painting this wall, and I know I'm using construction analogy, but I feel like we're doing everything to try to keep this raggedy house together rather than tearing it down and building a new one. And I do think that there is room for us to build a new immigration process. It doesn't mean that you are changing any of the the basics and any of the things that has to be in place in order for there to be any immigration at all so I'm not saying that we don't have a wall I'm not saying you remove the wall or anything like that what I'm saying is there are things that we need to pay attention to that we are facing right now that if we don't get it together it may cause a major major problem so after the break (laughs) we're going to dive into this we're going to hear from some mayors of some sanctuary cities just some clips of them and we're going to talk about what a sanctuary city is and then we're going to talk about what they're asking for stay tuned continue to listen in as we continue our discussion around my hot 24 which are my hot topics in the 2024 election cycle this week we are discussing immigration you're listening to the janelle king show and this is extra 106.3 stay tuned Welcome back to the Janelle King show. I am Janelle King and this is extra 106.3 and we are starting our second segment of the show discussing sanctuary cities, but how did we get here? We got here because this show is dedicated to us talking about immigration and the reason why we're talking about immigration is because I believe that that's one of my hot topics of 2024. I'm calling it my hot 24, even though it's not 24 topics. <laughs> And the whole purpose of this is that I really want to dedicate each show to highlighting some of the aspects of this topic that I find to be interesting. Something that I think that we need to keep in the forefront of our mind as we're going into this election year. Immigration just happens to be one of them. We're, we've talked about abortion last week. We're going to continue on by talking about the economy. We talked about healthcare. We'll probably talk about health care and abortion again because it's just a never-ending conversation. But elections, I shared last week where I stood on paper ballots here in Georgia. I'm just really sharing my heart as it relates to these particular topics and what are some blind spots or areas that I think that we need to look out for, but also highlighting that there are some significant change in tunes that we're seeing from the Democrats or the liberal side of things that I think we need to make sure we keep at the forefront of our minds. So when we talk about sanctuary cities, because this is something that's been really, really active, (laughs) which are sanctuary cities, because we've had so many migrants. There are a lot of migrants that are in our country right now. And you're going to hear for yourself because I have a clip of Mayor Adams in New York staying and stating there's some really concerning data points that's coming out of these sanctuary cities that it's only in a matter of time before this becomes something that is widespread. When I talk about sanctuary cities, who am I talking about? Right now, I believe San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York City, Chicago, Seattle, Portland, Denver, Austin, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia are all what you consider sanctuary cities. There was a city that's here in Georgia that I thought was a sanctuary city as well. And I think Atlanta may have some ties to it, but I don't know if they're like an unofficial sanctuary city, but either way, the major cities who have already stated that they are sanctuary cities is San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York City, Chicago, Seattle, Portland, Denver, Austin, Washington and Philadelphia I didn't add this clip to the show It actually just just came to my mind but there was a news report and I think I'm going to drop it on my website because I did share it on my social media but there was a news report that showed that the city of Atlanta was beginning to allocate funds towards bringing in migrants and being able to assist with housing migrants here in Georgia I don't know where we are with that but we need to make sure we pay attention to that as well now, what are characteristics of a sanctuary city? So what does a sanctuary city have to include in order to call itself that? Well, for one, there's a limited cooperation with ICE, right? Which ICE is our, you know, organization that's responsible for making sure that we are not being overrun by illegal immigrants. They're the ones who's called if a illegal immigrant is here, they're the ones responsible for sending you back sanctuary cities often have policies that limit or prohibit local law enforcement from inquiring about an individual's immigration status or from notifying federal immigration authorities about the release of certain individuals from custody. So that means that basically that's one of the first requirements of being a sanctuary city is that you are basically saying that we will in so many words keep you protected from our own government So keep that in mind. Another aspect of a sanctuary city is that non-enforcement of immigration laws. It's non-enforcement of immigration laws. These jurisdictions may prioritize local law enforcement's role in public safety and criminal investigations over federal immigration enforcement. As a result, they may choose not to use local resources to enforce federal immigration laws. In other words, who cares what the feds say? The feds may say, nope, we don't want to have illegal immigrants here. We are closing the border. We're done. But nope, these sanctuary cities are like, I'm going to supersede you. I'm going to have my own set of laws. And let me tell you how dangerous this can be. I sat down with someone. He was a mayor of a small town here in Georgia. He wanted to convince me that we needed to, and this was during the whole refugee time, and there was like refugees coming from everywhere. And he wanted to convince me that this is an argument that conservatives need to evolve in. And one of the things that he presented to me was that he said that he was going to see about allowing these individuals who were living in his city, because they were refugees, that he was going to allow them to possibly be able to buy and sell on the streets. So create a street market without having a permit. His argument was that they're not used to our policies, our laws and having to go through all of our bureaucracy. So on our red tape. So we're going to let them bypass that and allow them to buy and sell on the streets of Georgia and that they will be able to do without a permit. And I said, Hmm, that's interesting. Are you going to allow that to happen for all of your small businesses? Or are we just talking about the refugees? Because number one, the reason why they need to abide by our laws is because of the fact that they are our laws. They're in our country. So they are, they have to abide by our laws. And then you can't say that a citizen somehow has to be hamstrung, but then a person who's a non-citizen who's here under the guise of needing refuge somehow now gets to break our laws. That's a problem. When you start talking about having these sanctuary cities, you better keep in mind that sometimes it comes with these policies that supersede the federal government, what allows them to be able to do things that we may not necessarily advise as a government. Another attribute of a sanctuary city is the protection of undocumented immigrants. Sanctuary cities aim to create an environment where undocumented immigrants feel more comfortable in, interacting with law enforcement, local law enforcement that is, without fear of deportation will of course still feel comfortable (laughs) with local law enforcement because the local law enforcement is not answering to the feds or immigration laws. This basically argues that it helps to maintain public safety by encouraging all residents regardless of immigration status to report crimes and to cooperate with law enforcement. Well, what if the crime is you? What if you being here, as it is in the case of these migrants, what if you are the crime? The fourth legal and political controversy. So this is another aspect of Sanctuary Cities is that the concept of a Sanctuary Cities has been a source of legal and political controversy Supporters argue that these policies contribute to community safety and protect the rights of undocumented immigrants, while opponents contend that they undermine federal immigration laws and hinder cooperation between local and federal authorities. Well, we're not contending that. We're not just opposing it. You said that there will be some differences in how they report or what they report and how they interact with federal immigration laws. Matter of fact, there's either non-enforcement of immigration laws or very few. So there is a valid argument. And then secondly, protecting the rights of undocumented immigrants, what rights are we referring to? In this case, these cities basically agree to apparently only the theory, because when it's time for them to actually provide sanctuary, they sound... Like this, our government. We need folks to arrive in our cities with work authorization, so they can actually support themselves. We need federal dollars to support this, but really, we also need a coordinated entry plan, so we have a, a plan to deploy people to cities across the country based on their capacity, not just have all of them land in two or three cities, which are taking uh, the greatest brunt of that arrival. And I think it's really not sustainable for us long term. That was Denver Mayor Mike Johnson. He's the mayor of one of those sanctuary cities denver one of the things that he said is that he now now mind you mind you they may prioritize local law enforcement's role in public safety and criminal investigations over federal immigration enforcement keep that in mind so now we have a mayor who's agreed to these sanctuary city laws and vibes and rules and all this other stuff and now when it's time to put the metal what is it put the foot to the metal i don't know i'm terrible with those But anyway, (laughs) now when it's time to actually put your money where your mouth is, there's some major problems. And a lot of these problems are problems that we saw coming. Right now, Denver has the largest recipient of migrant arrivals. And he stated that part of the issue he has is that they have these these asylum claims and that they have court dates that are all the way in 2029 and that they can't work because they have, they don't have work visas. They can't establish any type of home here while they're waiting on their court date. You know why that's a problem? Because why are you establishing a home in a country where you are illegally here? Why isn't it uh, a possible for us to create some type of connection with these the countries that they're coming from to provide some protection there, or work with them, or have them? figure it out where they can protect their citizens because right now telling me that you have 40,000, that's what Denver is looking at, 40,000 migrants that you now are having to, that, that are coming with all these dates for court dates that are five, six, seven years out. Do you know that the mayor said that it will take him 15% or 160 million to $180 million in order to take care of these migrants? That is his entire budget for homeless. That is his entire budget for park and recreations. And all of it is going towards the migrants. But it don't stop there. Let's look at another city. Into the largest school system in America, more than a million children returning to class today with 20,000 new students from families seeking asylum. The school system getting another 110 million to the budget, but there are worries that resources will still be stretched to the limit. The city's shelter system stretched past its capacity this summer at one point, more migrants in city shelters than homeless Americans. So what you just heard was a snapshot of what's going on in New York. You heard the mayor just extremely upset because he knows that this is a major problem. Matter of fact, just two weeks ago, there were migrants who took over a high school because they needed a shelter from a storm. Apparently, 2,000 migrants spent the night at James Madison High School. They were originally living in the Floyd Bennett field, but then they relocated them to a high school for an overnight stay, and the parents were livid. And rightfully so. They should have been upset. You know what was really major about all of this is that the 2,000 migrants were supposed to spend the night, and they were, I think they were trying to move them out around 4 a.m., but clearly getting 2,000 people out at, at the wee hours of the morning is difficult. So the kids ended up having to missed school, They were sent home and had to do remote learning. Parents had to take off work. And I mean, Peter Ducey asked Corinne Jean-Pierre about this. And basically she was just kind of, you know, doing what she does, the song and dance. But he basically was like, are you going to pay these parents back? What about the money that they're missing during a time when we have this tight economy? They're asking them to take off from their jobs to stay at home with their children who they thought was going to be in school that day because the migrants have now taken over the high school. That is a major problem. This is why this is becoming a major issue. Mayor Adams said that this crisis will destroy New York City. He has more than 1 million children that have 20,000 new students. So let's get this straight. There's over 1 million students that are already in these schools. They just added 20,000 new kids to the schools due to the migrants. The city shelter has more migrants in it than they do homeless Americans. 110,000 migrants that is expected to be clothed, to be housed, and to be educated. That's around $10,000 a month. $10,000 a month that they are spending towards the migrants. So I absolutely think that there are some major things that needs to be done about this, but we gotta ask ourselves, how did we get here in the first place? Let's start here. I think that the uh, um, the answer is no. Uh, I think there is a challenge at the border that we are managing and we have our resources dedicated to, to managing it. What you just heard was DHS, Department of Health and Services, Chief Mayorkas, two years ago, saying there's nothing wrong. Every Democrat is saying there's nothing wrong. And as you just heard, there were several Democrats in leadership and on the Hill who denied that there was an issue. But we knew this was an issue. We knew this was going to be even more of an issue if we continue to let it go untapped without any type of control, any type of parameters put around it. It has always been an issue. And now you fast forward four months later, and now... They're saying that it's the Republicans who's holding up policy. Let's talk about Republican policy. It's very simple for us. When it comes to conservatives, creating policy around this, fixing this issue is really, really simple for us. Where I believe the Republican Party struggles with is figuring out a way to tighten up the immigration process. We can't keep allowing the left to draw this narrative or create this political narrative that somehow conservatives are anti-immigration, anti-people who are coming here from other countries. That's not what it is. For us, it is this simple. Close the door, come the right way. Improve our immigration process for those who are doing it the right way. Obtain citizenship so that you can achieve the American dream. There is no American dream without citizenship. You cannot come here, break into our country, and then apply to be a citizen here. That's not how it works. That's not how our law works. So in order for you to apply for citizenship, you have to go back to your country and apply from there. That's how our law is supposed to work. Now we got a lot of politicians, a lot of politicians and everybody's trying to change it up, but that's how it's supposed to work. In 2016, Trump came in and he had a plan. He had a, a border wall proposal. He had an enhancement to the border security where he said, again, he wanted to increase resources of border security, including hiring additional border agents, investing in technology, which is pretty much the exact same thing that they did in 1986. He had a zero tolerance policy when it came to family separation where Trump, um, The Trump administration implemented that there would be a zero tolerance policy. So adults who were criminally persecuted for illegal entry, leading to the separation of children from their parents, And honestly, you know, this is where we saw Obama and them kind of come in and really push this narrative that we were keeping kids in cages and all that stuff. A part of the 2016 proposal that President Trump had, too, was ending DACA. Now, I don't know if he's going to actually do it, but the Trump administration did take steps to end what we call DACA, which is a Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program which had been established by the Obama administration to quote-unquote protect certain undocumented individuals. But here's my thing. Regardless of where you stand on it all, we are here. We're facing this issue and we have to continue to talk about it. Maybe I'll talk about DACA more in depth later, but let's fast forward to 2024. Here we are. Four years we have been dealing with this migrant situation ever since President Biden came into office He had this goal of making sure that we have a robust, (laughs) thriving border, apparently, that's wide open to everyone. As a result of that, we have millions and millions of migrants. So we are fast forwarding to 2024. It is four years later. We have millions of migrants, millions of migrants later, and here we are. There's a new deal on the table. And as I stated before, this deal includes toughening asylum protocols for migrants um, that are arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border, as well as bolstering border enforcement with other personnel and high-tech systems. And then they had something along the lines of deterring migrants from making the journey in the first place. I guess that's like, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> what's her name? Kamala, our vice president. She did say, don't come. I don't know. I guess that didn't work, but it seems reasonable. It seems like that should go by fine, especially considering the fact that it was part of Trump's 2016 plan. It was also part of of Reagan, what Reagan signed to law in 1986. So why is it not getting passed? Because Biden has some plans of his own. He has some plans of his own. So according to the Biden proposal, the White House released a set of proposals that was aimed to what they call bolstering support of Israel and Ukraine. So they want to tie all this in to the border security policies or the border security proposal. And that's what's the major issue. They want to invest in domestic defense manufacturing. They want to provide humanitarian assistance and they want to in- address the influx of migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border altogether. And the total cost of them implementing this is going to cost us $105 billion, according to that proposal that includes a significant funding towards Ukraine at a number of $61.4 billion. And then they want to send Israel $14.3 billion, intending to support air and missile defense systems. (sighs) Everyone, what's most disturbing about all of this is that once again, it's a switching of the narrative instead of telling the American people that the reason why Republicans are hesitant to pass this policy or, or, or to sign on to this proposal is because of the fact that we cannot continue to give money to other countries when our country is falling apart. Now, here's the thing. I am 100 percent a huge advocate of making sure that we have a strong foreign relations and foreign policy. I really hope that that is clear. I'm not one of those people who feel like we need to just kind of turn our backs on other countries because I know that that can be a major problem. However, it's the switching of the narrative that we saw when we we're talking about abortion that we're seeing happening right now. I want you to check out this compilation of Democrats that are flipping. So for those of you who can't see it, you will hear first Obama, then you're going to hear Hillary, and then you'll hear Biden. Let's listen to them change up their tune. Before us, will certainly do some good. They will authorize some badly needed funding for better fences and better security along our borders. The fence is now basically complete. Maybe they'll need a moat. Maybe they want alligators in the moat. Secure our borders with technology, personnel, uh, physical barriers if necessary in some places. We will not build a wall Instead, we will build an economy where everyone who wants a good job can get one. I voted for a fence. I voted, it like, unlike most Democrats, and some of you won't like it, I voted for 700-mile Let me tell you something, folks. People are driving across that border with tons, tons, hear me, tons of everything from byproducts from methamphetamine to cocaine to heroin. It's all coming up to corrupt Mexico. And the impulse is to hunker down, shut the gates, build walls, exit at this moment is precisely the wrong answer. Former presidents have said to him that they wish that they had built a wall.
1: Do you I recall President Obama ever one. saying that? Come
0: on. There you have it. You heard it yourself. That is how they're doing this. It's like one day they're saying one thing, the next day they're saying something else, and they are hoping that we... Our, the townspeople is completely re, like, like that. Our, our attention span is so disconnected that we find ourselves in this situation. So please stay tuned because I have more on my analysis. We have to take a quick break since we're up against the break. I have to stop here. However, I, I'm going to go into this a little bit more as we can continue to wrap this up as we're talking about immigration and what my concerns are as it relates to them just flip-flopping on everything and trying to make it a Republican issue going into this election cycle. We all know how that plays out. We all know how it goes, right? It's, I'm gonna I'm gonna make it an issue and then when Republicans raise alarm and now people are catching on to it, I'm gonna make them the problem. Anyway, you're listening to the Janelle King Show here on Extra 106.3. We'll be right back. To the Janelle King show right here on Extra 106.3. If you missed the majority of the show, don't you worry. There will be an encore episode airing tomorrow. That's Sunday right here on Extra 106.3 at 9 a.m. And then, you know, you can catch the podcast. You can always catch the podcast. (laughs) The podcast airs every Tuesday. We have a new episode dropping. But you can always go to allthingsjking.com allthingsjking.com so that you can find out which podcast platform works best for you so you can go back and listen to past episodes as well as listen to this episode in its entirety. We ended by talking about some some unique things. Um, we ended by talking about the switcheroo that comes from the Democrats. And I've got to end this by talking about political narratives because political narratives is the reason why all of this gets to work. Political narratives right now is just running rampant. And as I stated in one of my little videos, it's extremely hard for us to tell the lie from the truth. And a political narrative refers to a story, an account that's constructed in order to shape the influence of public perception understanding and the opinion on political issues events and individuals and so we're seeing these political narratives on hot display going into this election cycle matter of fact we see them extremely on display going into every election cycle but the goal and the purpose of these narratives is to make sure that there is a advanced specific political goal that they can garner support and that they can shape public discourse. And I think it's important as we're going into this election cycle that we all are aware and that we are all spotting these narratives. And there are key elements that come into play when it comes to narratives. And so the key elements of a political narrative includes one, storytelling so every good political narrative often is going to be presented with a story secondly they're going to be framing it they got to frame the story which is the process of them selecting and emphasizing certain aspects of the story to influence how it is perceived because they don't want you to just hear it and come up with your own idea they want to make sure that they can present you with different frames so that you can that can lead to different interpretations while all seeing the same facts. But those interpretations are connected to how they want you to perceive it. Next, a good political narrative has to have a cast of characters. As we saw last week, they used this young woman, Brittany Watts, who they claimed was getting arrested because she had a miscarriage. However, when she was telling her story, even though the story the interview was highly edited, but regardless of that, we were still able to hear that in her story, she stated that she went home and she sat on her toilet and unfortunately she did pass the baby. However, it was a splash and it was not a miscarriage. Um, and that was a whole thing. So utilizing her the same way to utilize Jane Roe and all the others who came before her, is something that you have to look forward to. Oftentimes political narratives can be can be utilized um, by it bringing in identifiable characters such as political figures or leaders or like I stated with Britney, just ordinary people who will play a specific role. And their whole role in the story is to make sure that they influence public perception. Another element of a political narrative that we've got to continue to focus in on is messaging. Narratives often convey specific messages, values, or policy positions that align with the objectives of the creator. So whoever came up with the narrative is always going to put together some type of message that that is connected to their values, their policy positions, and just know that there's a goal behind it. It's not just for informational purposes. It's so that you can be Ah, uh, tricked into thinking that somehow what they're saying is what it is. when, in fact, it's oftentimes just a narrative, just a story. Consistent messaging is crucial in political when it comes to political narratives because it reinforces the intended narrative. So my thing is that I always encourage people to listen, listen for that same line, no matter who's saying it, no matter what side of the aisle, that same line that, uh, or talking point that you keep hearing being used over and over and over again, either by the same person or several people who share the same beliefs in the narrative. This is why you have to pay attention to it because enforcing it strives and striving for narrative consistency over time, it builds credibility and it builds trust in that one. Here's a big element that you must always keep in mind and that's contextualization. Political narratives contextualize events by providing a framework for understanding why something happened. This goes back to that framing, right? This is the contextualization is all the stuff that makes up that framing. It, it's it's the it's the indicators that are there. It it could be um, buzzwords that make you think about things a certain way, or just how they present it all together. Then they use this. This is the last one, last element that I'm going to talk about. But these are just the key elements in a political narrative. But this element here, oh my goodness, appealing to emotions. A successful political narrative often appeals to emotions. How do they do it? By aiming to evoke emotions empathy in a lot of cases concern in a lot of cases excitement any type of emotional engagement that they can make with this narrative creates a more memorable and a more persuasive narrative so all of that is 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 definitely something to keep in mind when it comes to appealing to your emotions right if you're watching a video or clip or something and all of a sudden you're crying or you're feeling it in your soul please believe that that plays a role into how you're going to see things happen and we're seeing this play out heavily when as it relates to the war in israel lastly lastly the last major element of a political narrative that you have got to look out for because political narratives what's being used to flip-flop the story from one to the other is that A good narrative has media amplification. Narratives are disseminated through various types of communication channels and you have to keep this in mind. This includes traditional media as well as social media. It could be speeches. It could be campaign material. Media plays a crucial role in amplifying and disseminating political narratives. Here's the thing. I've started this um, little... I started pushing out these little small videos um, basically educating people on topics that are very basic very simple like what's the difference between Democrats and Republicans Um, The one that is getting ready to drop very soon is this on political narratives, where I go in, I talk about, you know, how to spot it. I talk about um, the fact that there are political narratives going everywhere, but most importantly, the elements that you need to look for in a political narrative. And then the part two that's going to be dropping is going to talk about what you can do and how you can fix it. If you do see that there is a political narrative that is in front of you, that is causing you to have to um, change the way you feel about things. You don't, you're not understanding like why am I seeing it like this? Well, because you're being, being pushed in that direction through these narratives. So, I'm going to give to you what's in that part two that I'll drop on social media, but I'm going to give it to you now because I don't want to leave without you having this. What do you do if you, or how do you respond when you've spotted a narrative? Let's start with this. Diversify your sources. I want you to not only listen to my show, but listen to all, like listen to shows that have an opposing perspective because if this, and if you're doing that right now, you're listening to me because you oppose what I'm talking about. Great. That's what you should be doing. You have to also check for context. Make sure that you examine whether the narrative provides a complete or accurate context. And lastly, question your assumptions. There are so many times, just like when I saw that article that said that that woman was arrested for having a miscarriage and I listened to the interview, it made me go, hmm, it made me pause. That is something that you should be aware of pay attention to that because in a world where there's so much that we're being pushed in so many different directions, you better make sure that you are ahead of what's happening and what's really going on. I encourage you to do all of these things. And I'm not saying that this approach is for everyone and this is what everyone is doing, but it, does, it is an approach that happens for many. And I don't want you to be a fool during this election cycle. I want you to vote responsibly. So in other words. Make sure that you're doing your due diligence. Do the work. Do the work. Don't let them tell you one thing and then the next day they're telling you something different. Do the work. Thank you so much for listening to the Janelle King Show. We'll be back next week. Don't forget tomorrow at Encore episode at 9 a.m. right here on Extra 106.3. And then the new episode of this this podcast drops on Tuesday. You can go to my website, allthingsjking.com to find out how to listen to it or just go to the podcast park right here on Extra 106.3. consultation.